Howdy, this is Jim Rutt, and this is The Jim Rutt Show. Listeners have asked us to provide pointers to some of the resources we talk about on the show. We now have links to books and articles referenced in recent podcasts that are available on our website. We also offer full transcripts. Go to jimrutshow.com. That's jimrutshow.com. Today's guest is Sarah Kinsfodder Yerkes. Hi, Jim. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, Sarah and I go way back. Uh, you know, she went to work for my office of the CTO at what's now Thomson Reuters, right out of college, as I recall. Is that right? That is correct. 21 years old. Oh my God, kids today or kids then. We had a position we called the assistant to the assistant. It was essentially a, uh, a slot we reserved for high potential people fresh out of college. Basically, they worked as a troll for uh, my uh, administrative assistant, did all what, anything needed to be doing. And the uh, plan was to quickly promote them into something in our line department if they showed themselves to be uh, worthy. And Sarah definitely did, was quickly promoted into our recruiting and HR organization where she did all kinds of good things. She then left, I guess after I left sometime, and joined Web Methods, a very fast-moving D.C. area tech startup where she helped drive their talent acquisition strategy. Then she went on to a career bringing her expertise in HR, organizational design, leadership, culture, strategy, et cetera, to many companies through a consulting career. And I loved I picked this up on her, I think, LinkedIn bio, and she's a co-founder of something called the Badass Women's Network, <laughs> which I can say is definitely not a lie, uh, even though I know nothing about it. So if uh, somebody out there in listener land wants to get a hold of you for consulting services in these many areas, how do they get in touch with you? Probably the best way is through my um, my LinkedIn profile or just Sarah at bluesky, B-L-U, skystrategy.com. And we also have a website out there. All right. That's good. She'll do you good work. So to our uh, first topic, one of the things we wanted to dig into a little bit is what's today's multi-generational workforce like? How does it differ from the way it was back, say, 21 years ago? Yeah, that's a good one. Although I did want to add one thing. Do you remember when you left Thompson and you went to Network Solutions? I did a, a brief stint with you there you had sent me in to uh, go find out what was going on with the HR department and they quickly put a bounty on my head. Do you remember that? I do. I thought you worked there and I looked on your uh, LinkedIn, it wasn't there. So I said, maybe I hallucinated it, which is certainly possible. <laughs> I do remember giving you a lecture on how to live on $10,000 a year and I thought it was there. No, that was actually when I was trying to get the job at Thompson. You tried to convince me that I didn't need to live in Arlington, that I could find a cheaper place in Herndon, that I could live off of beans and lentils, have all the nutrition I needed. I mean, it was, it may have been a little, oh, it might have been $10,000 a year, whatever it was, it was ridiculous. But, you know, I mean, the network solution thing ended quickly because the web methods guys came to meet with you and you introduced me to them because they were looking for you know, they were, they were growing quickly. Right. And so they were looking for help and you're like, Hey, go check these guys out. And, uh, I was a little nervous at the time because I'd worked with you for a good bit at that point. And obviously, you know, it only been a couple of months. I mean, maybe weeks since, um, I'd left Thompson and Bennett network solutions, but I did end up leaving obviously with your blessing. You're like, yeah, go do it. I mean, this is going to be a cool thing, but it was a crazy brief stint at network solutions. Nonetheless. 
Yeah, I think you didn't get along with the HR queen, as I recall. No, she sucked. Ah, uh, yeah, that was, uh, it was not the kind of really cool HR organization that we'd built at Thompson. That was for sure. Now, we eventually cleaned it up and got it better, but it was never as good as the one we created from scratch. That's for sure. Well, and I think it also had a lot to do. I mean, you know, the people that you had both at Thompson, Vice, you know, the people who were, I mean, you know, you had a person that was much more the traditional HR, right? But there were a lot of a lot of different things askance in that culture as well. So not just HR, a bunch of different stuff. For day, I'm sure that was a, a turnaround from almost top to bottom. Yeah. Uh, well, we had two good departments. We had a really good finance operation and a good legal operation. Pretty much everything else was definitely in a very serious rebuild, restructure, in some cases even restart. But we did it. Yep. Yep. You did. Anyway, let's hop into our, uh, into our topic, the multi-generational workforce today and compare it to when you entered the workforce. Well, I think the thing that I uh, find most interesting about the workforce today is First of all, we're dealing in some industries, right? We're dealing with the potential to have five different generations in one organization. And I think that that just presents a whole lot of different challenges. Um, Not necessarily bad, some good, but challenges nonetheless, particularly for managers as they're trying to figure out, you know, how do I manage these people with different generational approaches to work and different needs? So I think that that's pretty interesting that we we haven't seen that. And yet here we are, you know, everything from pre-baby boomer to, you know, the current Generation Z. Is that really any different than back in the day when we had all those generations? I don't think we had them at Thomson Reuters technology operation, but, you know, most businesses in those days had people from 18 to 65. Yeah, but I think that the difference between, so if I think about you being the oldest and me being the youngest, no, I'm totally kidding. You weren't the oldest, (laughs) but you know, that traditionalist, what I, you know, what's called the traditionalist. So pre-baby boomer and then Gen X, right? I was the Gen X. That was kind of when everybody was like, oh my God, these, you know, this Gen X group, they're crazy. They're, you know, asking for too much, engaged in too much. But then now we've got, you know, other generations that have come since then, and they have a completely different take on, you know, work, how they want to work, you know, everything from simple things like, when are they going to show up? You know, hey, we've got a nine to five environment. Yeah, screw you. I'm not going to do that. So I think that just the differences in the generations is now so much more present. But I think back then we really had probably three, right, that we could think of in our office. Yeah, I guess that's right. Today we have uh, boomers. There's still some of them hanging around for sure. There's Xers Mm -hmm. and then there's millennials and then the beginnings of whatever they're going to call the post-millennials. I think it's Gen Z. So four. So we went from three to sort of four, though I'm not, we'll we'll see how different the newbies are with the millennials. I sort of see them as a continuation, but that that may not be right. We'll see. Mm -hmm. How do you see the millennials and then Gen Z differing from uh, compare them and contrast them with the Gen Xers and the baby boomers? In all honesty, I think it really in large part has to do with um, the influence of, you know, technology in their lives. I mean, Generation Z, I mean, they are true digital natives. They've, They've not known anything different, you know, so and that and it encompasses their life and not necessarily in a bad way. It's just I mean, that's that's who they are. And so they see the world 
very differently than you know the what's left of the baby boomers and and even the you know the millennials at some level but i also think that that really influences their appetite for it's not necessarily traditional work it's just traditional ways of working i know that here in charleston something that i found that's really interesting is that we've got an influx, um, especially an influx in in technology. So the state's trying to make it really beneficial for companies, you know, to come to South Carolina through tax incentives and, and whatnot. But really, the people are coming here in droves because they want this quality of life. And there's a lot of people, you know, out of college in their 20s that want to be here because they want easy access to the beach and they want the year-round climate. And you know, they they work from home for companies all over the place. And I I think that they just decide, you know, for themselves, what's the life going to be that I want to live? And then I'll figure out how to get to the work or the work will actually find me because their talent is in high demand. So I would have never done that. I mean, I was all about, you know, how am I going to get to, a, you know, get to work at a great company and and be around, you know, really smart people and in a position where I can learn and I can, you know, I can grow and I can kind of, and I can work my way up. And I don't think that's their mindset. Does that make sense? I've seen it with some, of course, I've seen it with millennials and Xers too. I mean, I know Xers who, you know, especially as they've gotten say a bit older, said, screw the corporate rat race. I'm going to go uh, live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm going to get gigs on the internet. So it's not like that's an entirely new thing. It may be that the percentage of people of the newest generation may be a larger percentage of them doing it. Yeah. And then I think it's that that's their mindset at the shoot, right? Like, I mean, I'm definitely a part of that, you know, Gen X who said, yeah, I'm not going to do that. Right. I mean, that's in large part why I went to consulting because I kind of foolishly thought the consulting would be something that I could, you know, would give me more freedom. And that's not the case. Um, But I think especially Generation Z is that way out of the gate. Their personal lives and their careers are not different. It's kind of one in the same. And so they're driving, you know, their life um, and and the ways that they want to work and where they want to live and all of that, you know, on on their own. And I've I don't know that I've ever known, you know, kind of a more a gutsier, I think, generation from that perspective. It kind of reminds me of the boomers when we were young. You know, hell, I hitchhiked around the country for uh, two years, screwed around, did this and that, slept under bridges. Didn't really give too much of a fuck about career for a couple of years. And, you know, mm-hmm. I quit jobs to go do startups based on the, the sketchiest imaginable uh, fundraising. And so I think there are a fair number of us boomers were like that, too. You know, in fact, I've often said that I see a lot of similarities between boomers and millennials and maybe even more with the new Gen Zs or whatever they're going to be called, you know, less uh, set on having to follow our nose through a career. So I see that as a good thing and, you know, not that different than the kind of, you know, at least the hippie-ish aspect of the boomers. I can see that. I mean, I, th- I think there's a lot about especially Generation Z that's still undefined. But I I think that to your point, you know, they're very community oriented people. You know, I think we see that play out obviously a lot on social media, which they're very comfortable with. And I think there's a good and a bad aspect to that. But nonetheless, I mean, they're very, you know, they're very community oriented. I think that they're very, um, I think they're, they're realistic, you know, similar, I think to, to, to boomers. But again, I mean, I think there's, there's parts of that generation that are still um, evolving and undefined. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. And I, I also suspect that the kinds of 
digital nomads you're talking about are very heavily concentrated in the cognitive elite. You know, people who do things like computer programming or uh, video editing or, uh, you know, podcasting, I suspect, like yeah. in every demographic group, the vast preponderance of people have, you know, fairly normal jobs, you know, work at Walmart or, uh, you know, work in a, uh, you know, in an Amazon warehouse or what have you. So I think we should be a little careful to make sure that this conversation is most likely about the college-educated cognitive elite and probably working in kind of heavily tech-influenced careers. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I had, you know, again, I mean, it's a lot of, you know, what I surround myself here in, in Charleston with, right, is, is some of the technology startups and technology companies in general that are, and there's not, you know, this isn't like, there's not a ton of them, but there's a good and growing number. And, you know, the struggle, I think for any company, quite frankly, but certainly in, in technology with talent and being able to find talent. In fact, some of the interesting things I think, you know, since I left the DC area that I've been able to do is really help DC based companies that need talent, you know, especially technical talent access that down here. Um, you know, it's not expensive. And quite frankly, in many ways, it's better quality because, I mean, you can get all kinds of quality, but that it's saturated, you know, and now that Amazon is opening up a big footprint um, up in the DC area, I mean, it's going to become more so, but, but yes, for sure. I agree. It's, it's really the, the tech sector that we're, or the, the tech community that, that we're speaking to. Yeah, the D.C. area was kind of an interesting place to build tech companies. What I remember of it was it was dominated by the Beltway Bandits. And the, and the Beltway Bandits mm -hmm. had a, a strength and a weakness. One, they had a zillion jobs, but the weakness was because the way they had to pay people based on government contracting scales, A players got paid the same as C players. So if you remember, our strategy was to essentially strip mine the Beltway Bandits and steal all their A players and, and some of their better B players and leave them with the C players. In fact, I still remember yeah. uh, Bob Hall, who was kind of our rabbi at Thompson Corporate Headquarters. Uh, he was on like the business roundtable or something, and he'd gotten a call from one of the big time CEOs at one of the Beltway Bandits saying, "Hey, Tom, hey, Bob, your uh, Thompson Technology Group down there in DC is, you know, they're being very, very aggressive in their recruiting. They're grabbing a whole bunch of our best people. You know, please tell them to stop." So anyway, Bob immediately got on the phone and called me up and said, "Hey, Jim, I don't know what the hell you're doing, but I got this call from blah 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 blah, who I won't mention, and whatever you're doing." keep doing it. And so we did. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and I'm sure, you know, not, I mean, we had a little, I had a little bit of experience um, out in California in my web methods days because we had an office out there and um, had made a couple of acquisitions out there. But I mean, the technology environment in DC, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, everybody's getting into that game, right? And so, and you've got, you do, you've got your Beltway Bandits, which is different than other you know, the, the San Francisco's, the New York's and the Boston's, they don't have that massive federal government influence. And it's a bear for them to be able to pay for the type of talent that they want, which leaves it, you know, makes it interesting for technology companies to be able to go in and, and grab people. But, you know, it was a very aggressive environment nonetheless to recruit in. I mean, we had to pull out all the stops. Yeah. And again, the, you have to use tricks as we did, right? Uh, we differentiated ourselves. I still remember one of the problems with the Beltway Bandits is they make everybody take drug tests. So we decided, 
screw that. If you want to smoke reefer, go right ahead. In fact, I fought a big battle with that clown who was the head of HR at Thompson at the time. Who was that weasel? I don't remember his name now. But anyway, he wanted to force us to, to do drug tests. And I wrote a letter to the CEO of Thompson making the argument saying, I don't give a shit if people smoke reefer, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, you know, I will I'll give uh, him credit. He sided with us and said, uh, if, you know, if that's one of your competitive recruiting advantages, then go for it. So we did. Yep. You remember, you know, back in the day too, I mean, we, you know, when Thompson's strategy was really, um, you know, shifting, right, to become more technology focused. In fact, it's crazy to think about, you know, that particular point in my career. I mean, obviously I was very young, but that point in time, I mean, that was a big inflection point for for Thompson, right, um, to really go from, you know, more of that traditional brick and mortar to just using technology in new ways to deliver data, to deliver information. But remember, we had a big college recruiting effort all over the country and, you know, the, the Harvey Muds and the MITs and all kinds of, of awesome schools with great um, computer science programs. And, you know, I, that was a benefit even in those environments because a lot of the places that those those kids were looking to go to work were still, you know, kind of the, had the stiff upper lip, right? And we, we didn't have that. We're, we were trying to not have that, you know, that brand. Yeah, and we had to communicate the brand too, right? As you know, I famously said fuck at least once in every time I was interviewing somebody yeah. for a potential job because <laughs> I didn't want them to get a false perception of what our place was like, right? You know, we're the kind of place where the CEO says fuck if he feels like it. Yep. And whenever I think about recruiting, for instance, when I write ads, I used to write a lot of recruiting ads and I wrote them to both attract and repel. I want to attract the people we want, but yeah. frankly, I wanted to repel kind of rigid people who weren't going to fit into our culture. I expect all that today would get me in HR jail, but oh well, it worked back in the day. Yeah, you created a very narrow funnel for us. Yeah, although of course we got lots of names. I remember the radio advertising we used to do. Yep. They used to bring us uh, large numbers of, I thought, pretty good. Actually, it brought us all kinds of crazy stuff. But, you know, in that. Well, I, don't, I don't think there's anything wrong with creating a narrow funnel. I mean, it takes too much time and, and effort from, you know, your HR team to, I mean, good Lord. You know, when I was at Web Methods, we went through thousands of resumes. And, you know, you just, you needed the ability to really cut through all of that paper reading and figure out, you know, both in terms of, you know, experience and skills, as well as personality and cultural fit, like how, you know, who are we going to pick up the phone and call and who do we want to bring in to interview? I mean, you need to create that, that narrow funnel. So, you know, I was saying all that to give you kudos because it's, I, in my mind, it's a good thing. You want to cut out who you can, who needs to go as fast as you can. Yeah. And I think that was the big problem with, and that's why we had a nice unfair advantage against most of those DC people. They were bland and bureaucratic to a fault, right? You read their ads and no one could tell whether this was for them or not, right? So they'd send their resume and so they got every Tom, Dick and Harry. And well, we did the repulsor attractor thing. And as you said, we got a more concentrated flow and I think that's the right way to do it. Yep. 100%. Okay, let's go on to the next topic. Something we've talked about over the years is leadership. What it means, you know, is it changing? What are the challenges? You know, what do you see out there in the nature of leadership in business land today? Well, as always, I mean, I think the topic of leadership is, is a fascinating one. Um, and I think that 
especially in what I do specifically, because a lot of it is not just, you know, I, I work with leaders. I do a lot of individual coaching. I also do a lot of team level work. And I really have seen a big shift to number one, people who don't, you know, who get into leadership positions and then, and they don't, you know, kind of stay still. They're evolving. They're openly evolving and they are very, they're more inclusive. They are, they're inclusive of the, not just their leadership teams, but the broader organizations around them, which I think is, is fascinating. And I think it leads to, you know, I think I can, I think it can lead to some scary things for leaders. I I mean, some vulnerabilities and it kind of exposing things about yourself that might not be, you know, textbook, but I do think it's very different than, you know, kind of in the, you know, maybe, well, 10, 15 years ago, I think leadership has evolved. The, t- the topic of leadership, learning about leadership, learning to become a leader, I think that has all, I think it's evolved quite quite a bit. So you say the uh, net result is leadership's on average better today than it was 15 years ago in, in your experience? I don't know that I can say that it's better or worse. Organizations writ large are different, right? I mean, we're organizations really no matter, I mean, in large part um, are evolving too. And I just feel like nothing stays in place for very long anymore. And that we've got leaders that recognize that and, you know, are creating capability within their organizations to kind of harness that power of of change and evolution. And they don't just expect it from, you know, kind of the broader organization and teams, but they they understand good leaders that I've that I have worked with, and I don't work with all good leaders, but that I've worked with really understand how that there's a, an evolutionary aspect to them even that, you know, is associated with that. So not good, not bad, just different and, and changing, not staying the same, right? Leadership isn't the same, I think, 15 years ago than it is today because of the, the change, the pace of change that we see in organizations. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I think I like what I'm hearing here. You know, as you know, I basically retired from the business world 20 years ago, which is hard to believe, but it is almost, actually not quite 20, 18 years ago. And back then we had, you know, some of that flexible leadership that you talk about, but particularly in larger organizations, it was not the rule. There was a lot of people who, you know, came up a hierarchical structure and felt most comfortable in a well-defined hierarchical structure with boxes on a chart and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, we obviously didn't operate that way, but we had to be very, very careful in selecting out those people who we thought had leadership capabilities in a more dynamic environment. Sounds like there's a lot more such people today. I definitely think so. And, and, you know, there are, I mean, and there's a lot of research out there about, you know, the benefit of hierarchy. So when you think about some people, I don't particularly care for it, use the church, quote unquote, as an example, or the uh, a, the police force as an example of the military as why hierarchy can be important and necessary. Um, I think there's benefit from from less structure and that, and we see that, you know, maybe not in those types of organizations, but we, I think we do see that being a little bit more pervasive, you know, that, that, that you don't have that org chart view, org charts drive me freaking crazy. Um, you don't have, you know, not every organization thinks of itself in terms of how, you know, and people don't think of themselves in terms of where they fall on an org chart. It's a lot more fluid and it's a lot more flat, right? Yep. 
And uh, some of that I think is good, but I also think there's some risks associated with it. As you might recall, we always had an org chart, but we didn't worship it. We moved stuff around, we redefined things on the fly, etc. But I do think it is useful for the org chart to exist, but just not for it to be worshipped. I have seen some companies that tried to go with completely without the org chart, and I think it's still out on the evidence and whether that's where that really works or not. There's a company called Valve, which runs the uh, Steam Game Network, for instance, which is a, a radical non-org chart self-organizing place. And uh, last I saw, they were starting to run into some organizational issues, and they got to about 300 people, where some amount of organization uh, they may be finding might be necessary. You know, but back to your other point, it's hard to imagine that somebody could operate in the old 1975 command and control structure in today's very rapidly changing environment. Every business almost is being reinvented every few years. You know, the speed of change brought on by technology, uh, by the marketplace, by globalism, it's amazing. Mm -hmm. And if you're not prepared to adapt yep. much more rapidly than you were in 1975, you're going to be dead. You know, how do you see the speed of change as a stressor to, uh, to management and organizations? Well, let me just say, I also find it amazing how many companies try to create this, ex not try, they do create an external brand that does not reflect really who they are inside. And I think that is, I don't think, I know that is something that just absolutely drives me crazy because number one, it's false advertising. But, you know, there's a lot of companies I think who don't know how to act, don't know how to behave, don't know how to manage, don't know how to lead, don't know how to operate outside of that tight command and control, traditional top up, bottom down type of structure. And yet they're, they are forced at some level to, you know, create a brand, especially when it become, comes to talent attraction, right? But they, they create a brand and maybe they're not even forced. They just do it because that's the evolution, right? But it's not true to how they, who they really are. And I see a good bit of that. And that creates organizational challenges as well. You know, I mean, I think in terms of the pace of change, it's, I think sometimes it can be industry specific, but there's, you know, and it's, and it's, I think it's tightly um, coupled with technology and how pervasive technology is within your organization. I mean, there, I don't know that there are many types of companies and organizations anymore that don't use technology, right? Whether it's just for internal email, you know, what, what have you, all the way to technology playing some major role in our offering. And whether it's, you know, you, you physically build something, but you've got a supply chain. And so you're using technology from that perspective to you are a technology company. I think the use of technology has always been in the past, you know, 10 plus years, the major driver of change. I think the thing that I tried to footstop for a long time, especially with leaders was, you know, really understanding culture and change, right? Um, and at a, at a different level than they had before. And, and starting to think about change from, you know, you're not going to send your leaders just out to go get trained or your managers on good change management skills, right? It's, you can't boil this stuff down to a two-day training seminar or a, you know, a, a, a matrix of steps that you need to take in order to be able to manage, quote unquote, change within your organization. That's really a mindset shift. 
And that, you know, having that talk about mindset and what that change, you know, and, and working with people to really go through that change where they can accept change, they know how to work in it, they they know how to manage in it, they know how to lead in it, I think has been a big inflection point within, you know, organizations and, and for individuals as well. You think they're doing it better than they used to? Managing change? Yeah. Um... Yeah, I mean, I think that there's more organizations that are better at it now than they were in the past. And I think there are more and more organizations that are starting to harness that power, um, that, you know, that that energy, that evolution, um, so that it's it's kind of like the air they breathe, right? It's not this thing that comes around and like socks them upside the head, but they're learning how to really, in, you know, kind of em- embrace it more. But I think that's so, I mean, it's so prevalent to the world we live in today. I mean, you can't, how do you get away from it? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one would expect, if nothing else, you know, evolutionary pruning would make people better at change as the rate of change continues to accelerate. Those companies that haven't figured out how to manage in a highly changing environment, a lot of them are going to die, right? Yep, I remember the example back in the D.C. area, we had a uh, really big home improvements chain called Heckinger's, kind of like a Home Depot or something like that, and covered Maryland and Delaware and Pennsylvania, parts of Virginia. And they were actually very, very mediocre, but they were big enough that the Home Depots and the Lowe's of the world decided not to go after the D.C. area until the very end. But when they finally did, you know, they they folded in about 18 months. You know, they just did not change in the face of this coming huge threat they had to see coming, and they just folded. It's hard to imagine companies that have survived over the last 20 years in any kind of dynamic environment haven't gotten at least a bit better at the change management game. Yeah. You know, I think the other interesting piece about, you know, really looking organizations that are looking at change as constant and the pace of it that, you know, as it speeds up is that I feel like a lot of companies have gotten closer to and better about understanding their customers. Yeah. I mean, that's all I've always been key. You don't understand your customer. How can you be in business? Right. Yeah. But and, and even in, I mean, you know, clients that I've worked with in the federal space, you know, I mean, it's a, it's really interesting without, you know, kind of going into too much detail. It's really interesting to work with organizations that have never had to think about customer, because if you think about, you know, I mean, in the, in the government, a lot of times they just don't, or they don't understand, they've never done it. And so they don't understand how, what they do impacts, you know, whether it be, you know, the American people across the board or other people within their, in their organization. And just having that concept of everybody's got a customer, I think is really, um, has evolved and they're getting, you know, I see organizations getting better about and closer to that, that customer piece, which I love. I love it. Yeah, it's certainly uh, something I've always believed, and it's something I counsel all my uh, you know startup people that I invest in or on their boards or whatever. Uh, you know, go out and you know when, when you're even still just thinking about your idea, go to the biggest annual conference in the industry you're trying to enter. You'll learn a tremendous amount face to face with people. There's only so much you can learn from internet research. If you don't understand your customer and what problem they're trying to solve, you really shouldn't be in business. Well, in this kind of you know fast-moving, customer-centric world, clearly a 
key factor is you're going to need to have employees who are highly engaged, right, who are committed. And yet we talked earlier about the fact that perhaps the uh, the newest generation of employees don't want to be all that committed. They want to sort of think of themselves kind of as free agents. Uh, talk to me a little bit about the uh, issues around employee engagement and uh, what companies are doing to get better employee engagement. Uh, in this world? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, I think employee engagement is one of the big, um, you know, kind of HR-ish, you know, topics and hot buttons out there right now, because there's a whole world. I mean, there are entire companies that just do employee engagement. And that's everything from, you know, what's what's our growth strategy to, how do we deal with our culture? How do we make sure that there's alignment within our organization between, you know, what we do as a company, our overall strategy and our people, job fit and compensation. I mean, employee engagement is just a, it's a big term and it's a big effort, you know, within, within organizations these days. And so I think there's a lot that's going on to, you know, help organizations really focus on what does employee engagement mean for us? What is that you know, what is our overall strategy? What makes sense given, you know, the business we're in, the the the, the type of workforce that we're, um, you know, that we're creating, et cetera. But from my perspective, I really think about employee engagement when I'm working uh, with clients, um, you know, essentially to think about, you know, kind of belonging, growth and alignment, right? I mean, how, how do you um, create, you know, that connection with your employees, that sense of pride and belonging so that they feel that this is an organization that they want to be, you know, a part of. And of course, that reflects in how they work with customers. It's how they work with their colleagues internally. From a growth standpoint, you know, how are organizations committing to their employees? How are they supporting their development? How are they supplying growth opportunities? And, you know, kind of how planning for that on a bigger scale than they have in the past. And then, and lastly, alignment, you know, do we, do we understand, you know, what employees are, are looking for and can we line up our expectations, both in terms of the organization, you know, leadership managers and our employees so that we are, we're growing the commitment that we want them to have, you know, both to our customers as well as to, you know, kind of the strategic goals of the, of the organization. And so, you know, I think when you think about all of those pieces and, and, you know, there's different models, you know, out there in terms of, you know, what encompasses an, an overall employee engagement strategy. But I really, again, you know, I really think about kind of that belonging, that growth and the alignment and how that kind of creates an engagement and gets all the, the major, you know, pillars you know, people, organization, leadership involved in driving that engagement. And so, you know, I really think organizations are paying a lot more attention to it. You know, I feel like there was a, a period in time maybe, and, and we still do it at some level, but there was a big focus on feedback, right? Like getting feedback from our employees. What do they like? What do they not like? You know, let's keep it simple. Let's, you know, blow it out and start doing focus groups. What do we do with all of this data? Oh my God, we've got employees, you know, that are unhappy. And then there's, you know, then you, you kind of get, you know, HR and sometimes leadership into a position where they're running around frantically trying to correct things from this new data that they've, that they've collected. And that I think can have its own negative consequence 
because surveys and trying to respond to them can be, I think, really dangerous if not done well. So I think having an employee engagement strategy is really kind of getting people to shift mentally about how they think about how we get information and share it and how we put new strategies in place to, you know, kind of create a holistic approach to keep this organizational machine moving. But on the flip side of that, you know, these younger generations, I mean, the gig economy, right? We are the gig economy. And there's a lot of people that don't want to go to work for organizations. They want to do the work, but they don't want to be a part of your organization. And so they're figuring out ways that they can stand on the periphery and just kind of 1099 their way in. And I don't know that I can speak to how I I have in my mind ideas about how that's really going to, what role that's going to play in organizations, you know, down the road. I've seen a lot of companies who are getting rid of their infrastructure, right? I mean, how great to not have to have that office building. What a tremendous cost. But then that comes with its own set of challenges. So I kind of dipped into a couple of different topics there, but I think I answered the question overall. Yeah, the uh, engagement area is an area I'm quite interested in. In fact, I'm going to put a little plug in for one of my investment companies called Voter, V-O-H-T-R.com. You know, they've uh, got a very cool product for what I would call continuous lightweight surveying. Uh, They do a survey question every day. Often it's just a fun question. Would you rather be rich or famous? That kind of thing. But uh, they recommend that their clients put about one third of the questions to be, uh, uh, you know, business related and actionable. And uh, the results from that thing are, are, to my mind, much better than those tedious once a year, 60 question questionnaires that are administered by some consulting firm. It takes four or five months for the consulting firm to analyze the results and finally present it to management, probably too late, and then nothing ever happens. Yep. I'm a much bigger fan of real-time measurement, but of course, you have to have a management team that's committed to listening and actually doing something with it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I will, I'll tell you, I, I had a client once who wanted to do a survey every year and mainly because he really wanted to win an award that was given out to companies in the DC area every year. And, um, I was coached, they brought me in obviously as a consultant and I was coached by his leadership team that I had to take him downstairs to a restaurant and feed him a couple of martinis before I gave him the results. So that, you know, not just listening, but being okay with the fact if things aren't great. Yep, absolutely. And in fact, when we've been selling the voter product, uh, we have found a surprising number of companies that really are not intellectually honest. Uh, They really don't want to hear the truth. Absolutely. That's pretty sick if you ask me, because as you'll recall, our number one value in all rut companies is intellectual honesty. You know, let the chips fall where they may, but perhaps even maybe more than back in the day, it seems like there are people that want to live in cloud cuckoo land and don't want the truth. What's that all about? Well, and I, I think the other thing that you, you know, that you really impressed upon me was being able to speak your mind, right? And I remember, and I've got it somewhere, a very crisp statement from you that said, and if you feel like you can't, don't work here anymore. This is not a punitive organization where if you say something, you know, if, if, if you think something, say it basically. But, you know, there's a lot of organizations out there that don't have that kind of culture and you will, you, you, there could be punitive action taken if you, 
you know, and I'm not talking about, I'm talking like at the intellectual level, right? Not like, what do you think of this guy over here? I mean, hey, we're working on this project. It's going sideways. What do you, what do you think we need to do? Right? No, you gotta, you gotta toe the line. It's incredible to me how many organizations I have met that number one, do that, you know, um, and, and don't try to, to squelch that, that piece of it. And then don't want to hear the truth or flat out will say, I don't really think that that's the way that things are and we're not going to do anything about it. Yeah, it seems like there's a lot more of that uh, going on. I think one of the classic examples, I don't know if you remember this, uh, was a, uh, an engineer at Google who wrote a long, thoughtful, and controversial piece on why Google was having problems hiring women as engineers. Yep. I think his name was James Damore. And uh, you know, as far as I can tell, he was attempting to be intellectually honest. You know, he violated some uh, shibboleths of uh, HR politeness, <laughs> but he ended up getting fired for that, for floating a document on an internal discussion board uh, that was meant for the purposes of discussion of ideas, including, you know, fringe ideas. And this thing violated some level of political correctness sufficiently badly that they fired him. Now, what kind of signal does that send to your organization? It sends the, you need to shut the fuck up signal. Exactly. And, uh, and of course, part of that is being driven by, uh, you know, today's HR departments. Uh, I must tell you, when I talk to friends who are still working in big corporate America, they all go on endlessly about how much HR sucks. I mean, what we used to think that if it wasn't done well, it was kind of a waste of time. But now I hear a lot more about it being a positive evil. Yeah. Any, any, any of that in your experience? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, even though I started off my career in HR, from the consulting perspective, I have never gone into a client effort working with human resources. They might become a part of the process once I'm in, but I somehow kind of became the antichrist of HR in a lot of ways. And I think that in and of itself kind of says quite a bit about HR, like you don't need any improvement especially given the work I do, right? Leadership development, culture change. You know, you would think that HR would be my caveat into the work that I do, but but it very rarely is. That said, I mean, I feel like there is just, I don't know. I mean, maybe there will always just be some aspect of HR that is a necessary evil, quote unquote, like you said, in terms of they, you know, do recruiting, they do employee paperwork, they do, you know, but- I still don't feel that across the board, HR has done enough to really try to understand and evolve in a way that's like, hey, people are the most important part of an organization. Like that's clearly in your wheelhouse. Can you do something more revolutionary than what you're doing now? And it, and it feels like, again, clients that I work with, they just want to work around HR because HR has never given them anything to really you know, drive any part of the business, drive any part of the trade. I mean, that's probably not fair across the board, but they, I don't know, just, it just feels stuffy and it feels old school. Yeah. That's the kind of complaints that I'm hearing from people out in the field. And I remember, you know, we built our organization, our HR organization at Thompson so that it was central to our strategy. You know, I, when people ask me how I spent my time, I said, I spent a third of my time on making sure our HR organization was the best that we could possibly have out there. And, you know, as you may recall, we divided it up into 
three parts, basically recruiting, retention and development, and then the third part for the transactional, you know, management of insurance programs, uh, that kind of stuff. And I thought that was, that, that produced a pretty damn good result for us. And, you know, some of our alums have taken those ideas with them. And I think it worked out well for them. But what you're seeing and what my friends are seeing is that in general, at best, HR is a nuisance. And at worst, it can be a, a big obstacle. Yeah. Well, you know, you were talking about the the guy from Google, right? Well, you know, did you, I, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure you did at some level, paid attention to, you know, kind of everything that happened at Uber, right? And as I was reading along as different things unfolded at Uber, what amazed me was the role that, I mean, HR was culpable in that situation, right? Of, you know, women filing complaints about things that were happening in the workplace and, you know, soft pedaling, I mean, just not jumping in and doing their job. And I was really blown away. And I was even more blown away when they fired the CEO. And I'm like, you need to walk the head of HR out because that person did a grave injustice to the organization and to the employees that were saying, hey, we've got some sexual harassment issues here. I was really surprised. And I really felt like that was an opportunity to kind of shake up HR, the concept of HR, the role of HR. But I also feel like they're so in the pockets of other executives in the company that in a lot of organizations, they're probably toeing the line, right? Instead of really able to say, hey, this is not okay. This is not what we're doing. We are not going to soft pedal this. We're not going to bury this. We're going to deal with it immediately. So they kind of get a bad rap from all angles. I mean, and yeah, there are those organizations out there that are much more, I think, futuristic, but I feel like they've got some coverage up above them, you know, that, that gives them the, the freedom and the flexibility to be, to be different, right? And not all leaders want to deal with HR problems. Yep. Well, this goes back to you know my prime directive: intellectual honesty at all levels, at all times. And it still amazes me. Why would you want anything else but the truth? Because if you're trying to make decisions, you're always in business trying to make decisions on limited information. And if the information you have isn't the best available and isn't the truth to the best your people and your organization knows it, you inevitably will make worse decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, so it strikes me that this Uber kind of cover-up is uh, yet another example of people failing to live to the code of intellectual honesty. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just, you know, also at some level, just good common sense. You know, I mean, if you've got an individual, let alone a number of individuals who've come forward to say, we've, we've got a problem because this person over here, you know, has, has done something to me. I mean, you've got responsibility, number one, to, to take action, right? I mean, it's not necessarily in that moment, make a decision, but it's, there's some type of action that needs to come from that to get to, the truth about, you know, what's happening. But, you know, where's your where's your moral compass and, you know, in all of this? I mean, you don't let things like that just fester and and go away or get to the point where now you've got, you know, people who are leaving their jobs because you're not doing your job and taking care of that situation, you know, at some level. So, I would hope that it's in large part, you know, speaks to the type of people and the type of leadership that's within the company, right? And like I said, I mean, they walked the CEO out. They should have walked the head of HR out at the same time in my mind. Yep, absolutely. Let's move on to another topic that's, you know, related to the things we were just talking about, which is one of the things that I think has actually been a, a good movement in general in our workplaces. But 
there's been some issues and there's some ways to go, which is the issues around women and men in the workplace, right? Yeah, one of my favorites. Yeah, a lot more women in uh, senior positions, though not yet pro rata. Though if you look up the pipeline a little ways, it's quite interesting to see that the percentages of men and women in the elite MBA programs and law school, medical school, almost exactly 50-50. In four-year colleges, it's more like 58, 59% women. So the pipeline should be uh, driving a a continued closing of these gaps, but they still uh, exist. Love to hear your thoughts on, uh, I'm not sure what the right word is, gender dynamics in the workforce, I guess. I mean, a lot has happened there, for instance, since, you know, since we worked together. And, you know, one of the things that is really, that has really stuck with me is that what we want to see, and we still, as you mentioned, have a ways to go. I mean, just across the board and women in leadership positions, women in leadership positions in Fortune 500 companies, women on boards, you know, just the presence of women in organizations. I think some aspect of, dare I say, you know, kind of now we've got the Me Too movement, right? So that has put a whole other, I think, layer of complexity around men and women in the in the workplace. And I have a good friend um, who, you know, we enjoy the fact that we don't see eye to eye on everything because we can really re- noodle around topics. And we were kind of talking about lean in and she's like, no, man, we got to lean out. And we've got, you know, everybody just needs to, women need to do what they've got to do. And we've got to encourage men to want to have better relationships with women in the workplace as women want to have better relationships with men. And so I have not, and I mentioned this to you, I've not been in a position where I've seen Personally, the relationships I've had with men in the workplace have all been really great ones, whether, you know, it be the men that I've worked with or the men that have worked, you know, for me over time, you know, longstanding relationships like similar to ours where I'm in the company of of equals and I'm always in learning mode and I'm always looking for people that I can learn from. But I don't know. I think that there's probably a tension that's growing. I work with some organizations that are women-owned businesses, and they're pretty probably all women, some of them. And that kind of gives me a little bit of pause, like, wow, if you're only focused on, you know, it should be the right person for the job. Not, And they're not necessarily just not focused on hiring men. It's just kind of how their evolution, their growth evolution has gone. What are we going to do? You know, are we going to be, are we going to see more organizations that are all men or all women? And not, are we going to stop learning how to, you know, kind of how to work together? I don't know. I mean, honestly, I don't know where this is going. I just think it's, there's a lot happening that's really fascinating and that needs to drive a bigger conversation, certainly within leadership teams, within organizations. Yep. And yeah, I'm hearing all kinds of weird things about that, you know, that, Here we are seeing very qualified women come to the workplace. We see women moving into executive ranks, but now it's kind of a backlash around this Me Too thing. You know, you hear men say, no, I'm not going to hire any women. I'm just opening myself up for a potential problem down the road, even if I'm uh, pure as the driven snow. And that's certainly not the result we want. And, you know, this idea of a woman-only company, I mean, to my mind, that's every bit as bad as a men-only company. You know, let's hope we can get past these challenges. I mean, overall, I mean, I got to tell you, the Me Too thing is real. I mean, I know a number of women who have horrifying stories from the workplace. And I've known some perpetrators on the male side. In fact, you probably don't even know this, a tear we had one who sexually harassed one of the women in the most gross and crude possible fashion. And 
you know, being kind of old school rather than dealing with HR, I called him up. Well, actually, I went down to his office and said, if he ever tried such a thing again, I'd break both of his fucking legs, right? <laughs> Two weeks later, he resigned, right? <laughs> yeah. Now, that was probably not a little in, politically incorrect, but it worked. But, you know, there are, I mean, those foul people are been out there. Uh, but we can't let the, you know, a, a tiny percentage of foul people ruin gender equality in the workplace. And, you know, there's some signs that it might. Yeah. And, and you can't let it ruin the power that comes from, you know, just hiring great people, whether they're men or women and, and, and creating, you know, teams that have different perspectives and have different experiences and, and can create really amazing outcomes within organizations. Right. You don't want to pass that up either. And I, and I know, I mean, I, I definitely, you know, there's, there's definitely been an impact, you know, in, in my life, it's just, you know, it hasn't been so grotesque that I haven't been able to, you know, kind of fight back and at some level get kind of get closure around things. But I also, you know, I, I think everybody needs to be more mindful of our behavior, right? But then like, I, let's hearken back to your interview style at Thompson, right? Where you always made a point to say fuck in an interview so that people understood kind of what they were getting themselves into. What do you think that that would be okay in this day and age? I don't know. Would you still do that? If it was at my company, I sure as shit would, right? <laughs> if I work for a big corporation, my guess is they, uh, they wouldn't like it. In fact, I have to tell you a funny story here. It's one of my favorite HR stories. When I, the first day I went to work at Network Solutions as the uh, new CEO, I brought my top 30 people together, which here's an interesting bad sign. Those top 30 people had never been brought together before, which by itself was a sign on how screwed up that place was. And I gave them a 45-minute pep talk and you know vision of what I had in mind for the company and you know what needed to be fixed and where we were going, but what tremendous opportunity we all had together here. And I used the word fuck three times. Quite humorously, the next day I get a call from the head of uh, the organization that included HR at our parent, SAIC, uh, which was this big beltway bandit. And you know, at the time I came, took the job, they were actually the majority shareholder. But one of my terms and conditions for taking the job was that they would, within two weeks, sell down their stock to less than 50%. But anyway, during that interim two-week period, in theory, I reported to them. And so I get the call from the HR head of uh, actually one level above HR. He said, oh, we got this report that you said fuck three times. Is that true? I go, fuck yeah. And then I, uh, you'll love this, uh, an HR person we will not name, so we don't embarrass her. I had had her actually <laughs> research the use of the word fuck in a non-sexual sense as an intensifier back at Thompson. And she had written this nice four or five paragraph analysis that said, it's absolutely not sexual harassment to say fuck as long as it's an intensifier and not referring to a sexual act. It was brilliantly written with a complete straight face. But fortunately, I had it on my email and I pulled it up and I read that back to this guy. And he said, oh, yeah, I guess you're actually right about that. But I really, we really wish you wouldn't say fuck. And I said, fuck that. And I hung up. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Well, I'll tell you a similar story, rather. Um, John Gleason, remember him? No, not really. Remind me. Yeah, he was our IT guy. We had a lot of IT guys. Well, no, I mean, he was like our, like fixed our computers up in Octo. Okay. Oh, he. Eason, John Eason. Eason, Eason, Eason. You're right, John Eason. My bad. I'll never forget John Eason, right? So I have, after I left Thompson and did my ever so brief stint with you at Network Solutions, 
it was my, I'd maybe been at Web Methods for about a week. And, um, you know, we had, I mean, we were a startup, right? So we were in a, a space that we were subletting from a sublet from a sublet. And it was like boxes and used furniture. And anyway, Eason came over because he was dropping off a CD-ROM that he burned off my computer of my e- old emails from Thompson. And instead of writing like, you know, Sarah's emails or whatever, he wrote Sarah's porno files and left it on the front desk and said, this is for Sarah Kinsfodder and left. And I mean, I was in HR and I got in trouble at, for, at HR with HR. And I was like, basically, it was like me and two other people. And I thought that was really funny. I'm like, you know, we, we got to light up, lighten up it at some level. It's clearly a joke, you know, but it was a, um, it created a little bit of a, of a tiff in my new HR capacity. Yeah, I, I don't like that. I mean, uh, you know, I still think you should be able to say fuck is an intensifier, right? Why the hell not? You know, for the reasons uh, this HR uh, professional laid out in exquisite detail. I don't know what the argument would be against it other than sort of general squeamishness. Yeah, no, and I and I totally agree with you. And I, I also don't admittedly tend to be squeamish and I use it as a general intensifier pretty often. And I also think that, you know, when I look back on my career and the teams that I've worked on, you know, there was, you know, a very work hard, play hard mentality that has always been, you know, something that career wise has followed me. I'm a play hard kind of person. And so I think about, you know, times when we would go out to happy hour or our Christmas parties or, what have you, I mean, that really helped build a sense of team, you know, having the opportunity to know your coworkers, your colleagues in a different setting and to be able to, you know, learn more about them, burn off some steam, you know, have some cocktails, whatever. I mean, I really feel like that is essential to becoming a team, right? We are not like one dimensional people. We, you and I have talked about this at the Lincoln Financial Leadership Summit, right? Where you don't come to work as one person and then you go home and you're a totally different person. And so, you know, when we get into these levels of sensitivity where people just kind of, they, you know, they engage, but they do it in a very vanilla fashion and they don't engage outside of, you know, whatever the very specific work thing is, like, what does that do, you know, to our sense of, of team, our sense of camaraderie, our ability to, you know, kind of get things done at a, you know, kind of firing on all cylinders level. Yep. And that's, what I think, one of the things that's, gives, uh, that's really given up if you allow the uh, HR police to, uh, you know, censor all kinds of good-hearted, you know, honest interactions because they violate some, uh, you know, shibboleths of, you know, the HR ordinances. And I know damn well that you're not supposed to say fuck in corporate America anymore. But I think that's stupid. I think that's a bad idea. And just the kind of, ex- I mean, it serves no purpose. There's, there's no sexual harassment involved in saying fuck is an intensifier. It's just a, uh, you know, a run amok sense of, you know, school marmishness or something. Yeah. Well, and it's, you know, it's, it's CYA and that's pervasive, right? How are we going to cover our ass? and just, you know, strip out all of the things that might make individuals individuals, but then won't offend or upset others. Yeah, I say tough shit. If people get offended, fuck them, right? In fact, my view is the word offended is the first sign of a bullshitter. Yeah. You know, I've spent a lot of my last five years studying neurocognitive science and cognitive science itself. 
And one of the areas I've studied is emotion. Well, guess what? There is no emotion called offended. It's a pseudo emotion people use to manipulate other people. So whenever you hear someone say, I'm offended, I want to just put in square brackets, I'm a phony bullshitter trying to psychologically manipulate you. Uh, It'll provide a lot of insight into what's really going on. Well, but you know, the word offended, like it strikes a chord with me. Like it strikes an emotion that is, you know, is real. Like when I hear somebody say, well, that offends me. I'm like, oh my God. Like, I, I, I mean, it, it makes me react in a certain way. In what way? Good, bad, or indifferent? It makes me, uh, I don't think it's good or bad. It, it, it makes me want to back away from that individual. Exactly. I mean, I'll go farther. It makes me think they're a bullshitter and a manipulator. Yeah. I think people fly that flag too fast and too often sometimes, but anyway. Let's use a different word. It makes me angry. I feel insulted by it, right? I feel humiliated and diminished, right? You know, say something that's real. Fuck you if you say offended. That's what I have to say about that. (laughs) 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 And a horse you rode in on, right? Yeah. This hyper oversensitivity, you know, it's just that that ain't the way to do it. Right? At least in my opinion, I'm an old fogey. I'm retired. But uh, hey, that's uh, that's what you get for uh, that's the advice you get for paying exactly what you paid to listen to the Jim Rutt show podcast, which is nothing. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, but, but you know what else, Jim? I mean, think about it. Like if you've got people around you that are offended, what do you do? You put distance between And this is a part of like a a growing systemic problem, right? Like, okay, I'm not going to hang out with that person because they're offended. They're too easily offended. You know, they, they use that term, you know, too often. And so then you feel like, well, God, I mean, what do I do? How do I talk to them? How, you know, and then you end up trying to twist yourself into a pretzel or you don't. And you're like, I just, I'm not going to hang out with that person. I don't want to be around them anymore. I mean, it's like one of those social stipulations, I feel like that just makes us more, more divisive. Anyway, we've, we've probably beat that horse. Yep. And I think we're kind of coming up on our time here. So I think we'll wrap her up. I want to thank Sarah for a very interesting and perhaps a little wild conversation that we've had here today. Well, thank you for having me. I am, as I looked at your other interviews and I've, and I've listened to them and they've, they've all been fantastic. I wasn't exactly how I was going to pigeonhole myself in on this, uh, on the Jim Rutt show, but it's it's been great. I mean, we we always find ourselves in a situation where we cover a broad number of topics, certainly with different opinions, and I'm really grateful. Thank you. Yeah, I think this has been great. Production services and audio editing by Jared Jaynes Consulting. Music by Tom Muller at modernspacemusic.com.